Well, today we are concluding our Talking Points series that we've been looking at over the month of August and into today. We've been looking at common points of conversation that may come up as we get to know non-Christians around us, as we get to know unbelievers in our lives. And the base verse for this series has been 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, where Peter tells us, he says, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared, always being prepared, he says, to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet, do it with gentleness and respect. So, that's what we have sought to do in this series. We have tried to do exactly what Peter tells us, to prepare ourselves to be able to have good and healthy dialogue with skeptics, with non-believers, with people who have not put their faith in Jesus, whether that be a family member, a coworker, a neighbor, or just a longtime friend or associate that you know. So we've discussed how to talk about how to talk to people about belief in general. On the first week, we talked about how to talk about God, the Bible, and what it means to even be a Christian. But today we're wrapping up by talking about probably the most challenging of these topics, and that's the topic of suffering. So before we dive into that today, I want us to pray and ask the Lord to help us to help us think through this topic of suffering and evil in the world and how we can better engage with those around us as we discuss these things. So would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we, again, we're here grateful to even be able to be here to worship, to learn, to live in Christian community, to make Christian friendships, God, that we need in our lives. Lord, we're so thankful that we have these things and these blessings, but also today, Lord, we're thinking about what happens outside of these walls. We're thinking about Monday through Saturday and the people that we encounter, the people that we know, we love, who do not know your love. Lord, we want to be able to articulate your truth to them in a way that helps them with gentleness, with respect. Lord, we want to be faithful witnesses for your name. We want to be the good and true representatives you've called us to be. So help us. We admit our weakness. We admit our lack of understanding. So would you fill our hearts with your wisdom and your truth and encourage us today through your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. There's no question about it. The reality of evil, the reality of suffering in this world is all too apparent. We see, all we have to do is just turn on the news and we see the reality of evil. We see the reality of suffering. Even just in recent weeks, we have witnessed the horrific evil of a racial killing in our own city. We have witnessed the horrific natural disaster of wildfires in Hawaii. We have seen an ongoing conflict of war between Russia and Ukraine. We have seen these things that grieve us. We have seen these things that make us 
wonder and ask, why did God not stop this? You see, no one is exempt from suffering. We will all experience some form of suffering at some level in our lifetimes, but we can't help but wonder, what is God's relation to all of that? Does he have something to say about this? Does he allow this to happen? Did he make it? What what, what do we know? What do we do with all of these events and what we believe that God is good, that he is holy, that he's completely sovereign over all things? It's not an easy topic. So today, we're going to look at this. We're going to talk about how we might respond as believers, as Christians, when we engage with others who are not Christians about this very topic. When someone may say something like, you know, I just don't think a good God would allow that to happen. I just think if God was truly good and powerful like you say he is, that he wouldn't allow that. These are the things we may hear as we have conversations with those who don't believe. You know, suffering is a serious and a real stumbling block for many people that prevents them from coming to the Christian faith. Tim Keller in his book, The Reason for God, says there's really two reasons for this, or at least two reasons that people stumble over the issue of suffering. You can kind of categorize them in two ways. So one is more philosophical. So the philosophical stumbling block for some people is, it kind of goes like this. Well, you know, it doesn't make sense to me intellectually. It doesn't make sense to me logically when you say that God is all-powerful and all-good and all-wise and there's evil in the world. Why doesn't he do something to stop it? He should be able to prevent it. So this just doesn't make sense in my mind. So that's more of a philosophical reason that some people, that keeps some people from the Christian faith. But on the other end of that, you have a personal, a personal reason. This would be more for the person who has actually gone through suffering themselves. They have gotten the diagnosis. They have lost the loved one. They have been the victim of abuse or tragedy in some way. And so for them, it's more of a personal issue. I, I cannot put my faith in that kind of God. You've probably had a friend, a loved one. Somebody in your life has said something similar to you. I'm sure if you've been a Christian for longer than a few weeks, probably. And there's going to be overlap. Sometimes it's going to be a little bit philosophical, a little bit personal. But let me say this before we even move on. If this is personal to an unbeliever who you want to share the gospel with, you want to be a witness to, if you know they're going through suffering right now, then let me just say this, and this is probably, this is a little ironic, but you probably don't. You probably don't need to have this conversation today that we're going to talk about with that person if they're going through a personal tragedy and suffering currently right now, if they're in the middle of it, if they're in the middle of it, they don't need to hear, they don't need to hear your theological explanations as to why you think they may be suffering. What they need to see right now is your love. They need to see your compassion. They need to see your care for them first, first. And as you do that, as you care for them, Pray that the Lord gives you that time to have that conversation about how he does relate to these things. So as we talk about evil and suffering with people who are not Christians, we must be overwhelmingly compassionate. We must be patient. We must be understanding with them. 
And back to the base verse of this series, 1 Peter 3.15, we must be abundantly gentle, abundantly respectful. So I want to give us, in light of that, I want to give us three things. Three things that we can do when we do have those conversations. So the first one is this. Number one, acknowledge their doubt. Acknowledge that their doubt is real. You know, even though as Christians, we may disagree with the logic of their reasoning as to why they're not putting their faith in Jesus, in God, even though we may disagree with the logic of that, right, it's very important for us to show someone that we can relate to their doubt. So start by acknowledging to them that, you know, doubt is natural for all of us. Just be frank with them. Like, I struggle with doubt myself sometimes. You know, Psalm 13. Psalm 13 is one of the most candid expressions of doubt that you will find anywhere in the scriptures. Look at what David, and this is David, okay, who is described elsewhere as a man after God's own heart. This is David, a faithful believer, but look what the look at the doubt he's having. In Psalm 13, he expresses it this way. Speaking directly to God, David says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? He says. David was a great man of God. Yet he had these moments where he seriously struggled with doubt in the midst of his personal suffering. So doubt is natural for all of us, even Christians. We gravitate towards doubt. It's our natural inclination. Why? You know why? Because we're not God. (laughs) That's why we doubt. Think about it. God knows everything. The Bible's very clear that God is infinitely knowledgeable. He knows all things, which means he sees the whole picture all at once. He sees all of humanity, all of human history, all at the same time, the beginning, the middle, and the end. You see, we only know what we see directly in front of us one day at a time. That's all we know. We don't know the future. Imagine if you take your kids, if you have kids or you know, your nephews, your nieces, your grandkids, if you take them to Disney World, all right? And here you are, you're at the Magic Kingdom, and you know how it goes if you've been. There are one million people there, right? And it's worse than Times Square on New Year's Eve in New York City. It is worse than that, right? And so everybody's there, everybody stinks a little bit because they've been sweating all day, and you're just crammed in there like sardines, and there's a parade, There's a parade coming down the street. So you got Goofy and you've got Donald and you've got Chip and Dale and then you've got Mickey somewhere down there. But your little kid, your little kid is beside you, right? And he's just tugging on your pants. He's just tugging on you saying, is Mickey coming? Is Mickey coming? Because he can't see anything, right? All he can see is directly through this little crack of people. He can only see the float that's coming right in front of him one thing at a time. Whereas you're tall enough, or not me, but you probably are, right? You're tall enough to see over some of the other adults' heads and you say, oh yeah, Mickey's coming, I promise, he's coming. And meanwhile, your heart is filled with doubt. Was this vacation worth it, right? (laughs) You see, 
our vantage point compared to God's, it's kind of like that. We are tugging on him. We want to know what's coming next, Lord. What's coming next? Can you see God? Because I can only see this. And I want to see the whole thing. I want to know what you know. Would you please tell me? You see, we just don't know what God knows. And that's why we doubt. There's a great gap between his knowledge and ours. His knowledge is infinite. Listen closely. Here's what we do, right? Here's what we do with this gap of knowledge between what God knows and what we know, which is way down here. We have to fill that gap with something. Between God's knowledge and our lack of knowledge, we have to fill that gap with something. And you know what we fill it with? With either trust or doubt. You've got to fill the gap with something. So the first thing we need to do when we're talking with a non-Christian about what it means to trust God or, or to deal with suffering in our lives, we have to be relatable. We have to say, I get it. I get where you're coming from because in that great gap between what our God knows and what I know, sometimes I fill that gap with doubt myself. Acknowledge their doubt. The second thing though, once we have acknowledged that we also doubt at times, the second thing is to affirm what we do know is true. Affirm what we do know to be true. Once again, I'm sorry, once we acknowledge someone's doubt, that's, that's really a way of us already admitting that there's not, there's a lot that we just don't know, right? When we relate to their doubt, that's us saying, hey, listen, I don't know either. There's a lot I don't know, right? But at that point in the conversation, again, maybe not if they're dealing with something personal in the moment, but if the door is open and you feel like you can walk through it gently and respectfully, it's helpful at that point in the conversation to talk a little bit about what we do know to be true and to encourage them with the truth of what we know in God and who he is. So two things in particular here. Number one, God is infinitely powerful, wise, and good. God is infinitely powerful, infinitely wise, and infinitely good. In other words, we believe, and we can say this in conversation, and and some, some of these words are less, we can say, We believe God has the power to cause anything to happen and to prevent anything from happening. But we also believe that he has the wisdom to know and how to use that power. He has the wisdom to know why he should use that power. And not just those two things, but we also believe that God is good. He's good and he's holy in all of his actions and only good comes from him. Now, I want us to look at some scriptures. This is kind of going to be like rapid fire here, so it's going to be quick, but I want us to look at some scriptures on the screen that affirm these things about God being infinitely powerful, wise, and good. This is important to know. So Colossians 1, here's what we believe about God. Ready? Colossians 1, verses 16 and 17. For by him, and that's actually referring to Jesus, for by him, Jesus, all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. 
and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So God did not just create the world and then kind of step back a distance and say, I'm just going to see how this plays out. No, he is actively sustaining creation. He is actively sustaining the molecules and the atoms in this room right now. He is the infinitely powerful God who holds all things together. So God created all things and sustains all things. He has not lost control over his creation. He is infinitely powerful. Now, Isaiah 55 Not only is God infinitely powerful, he's infinitely wise. Look at this. Isaiah says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Right? It goes back to what I just said. God's thoughts are so high. His way of thinking is so untouchable for us and our small human finite minds. We cannot think the way God thinks. We cannot know what he knows. We cannot even grasp or fathom how much, how much greater he is than us. So God is not confused. Now we may be confused at times in our lives, but he is never confused. He is never taken off guard. He is infinitely wise. So of course, of course we don't know why he does some of the things he does. We don't have to know because he's God and we're not. Psalm 119, not only is he infinitely powerful and wise, listen to this, here's the kicker. He's infinitely good. You are good and do good. Simple as that. 1 John 1, 5 says God is light and in him is no darkness, no darkness at all, no impurity, No evil, no wickedness, nothing, no sin. In him is only light, only pure, holy, perfect, infinite goodness. God is good. Only good comes from him. And because all these things are true about God, you know what else is true? Because those things are true, God hates evil. God hates evil. Look at Psalm chapter 5, verses 4 through 6. The psalmist says, for you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. So when we're thinking of these things, what do we know to be true about God? What the scriptures tell us that he is infinitely powerful, wise, and good. Christian author Jerry Bridges in his book, Trusting God, says God is trustworthy because he is infinite in these three ways. He says, this is great, think about this. If God was lacking, if God was lacking in even one of these ways, in one of these characteristics, then he would not be, number one, he wouldn't even be God. God must be a perfect being, right? To even exist as God. But the issue here personally is that he wouldn't be trustworthy. So imagine if God was all powerful, but not all good, right? Imagine that. If he was all powerful, but not all good, well, that's terrifying. I mean, think about that. There's, if there was this 
If there was this higher being above us who had all the power in the universe, but we couldn't trust that he was actually gonna use it for good, that's terrifying, right? What if, what if this? What if God was all wise and loving, but not powerful to carry out his desires? In other words, what if he knew the right thing to do and he really wanted to do the right thing, but he just didn't have the power to do it? Well, that's not a God that can be trusted. But because he's all three, because he is all three, then he must be trustworthy. And so in light of those doctrinal theological truths, here's the more personal comforting verse, Romans 8, 28, that we know and we can stake our claim on as Christians. We know. We don't have to be unsure about this, Paul says. No, we know that for those who love God, all things, all things, really? Like everything, all the bad things that happen in the world, all things? Yeah, all things. All things work together for ultimately good. We may not see it in the moment. We may not understand it. We won't. We may never understand it. There may never be an answer for the question of why. Why is this happening to me? We may never know the answer, but in the end, when we're gathered with God in heaven, worshiping King Jesus, we still may not know all the answers that God knows, but we'll know what we need to know. We'll know that everything did work together ultimately for good. For the God who is unfolding the story of History, one day at a time, according to his sovereignty and his plan, for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, these are the truths we know to be true, but this still doesn't answer the question why then does he allow evil and suffering to even exist in the first place? So, there's a second truth that we may need to be willing and able to discuss with someone. And I want to be clear here, by the way, before we dig into this one, that there, this is not exhaustive, all right? So there are more things that we could discuss, but we just don't have time to on a Sunday morning, and that's what our Wednesday night equip classes are for, to go more in depth about these kinds of things as we did this last spring on this very topic as well. But here's a good point that I think we need to make today. Secondly, as we affirm what we know to be true, free choice allows the possibility of evil. Free choice allows the possibility of evil. So, Listen, I am not a Christian philosopher and I am not going to pretend to be, okay? Um, I'm the kind of guy who's not even smart enough to realize probably shouldn't go to Disney World, but there's a million people there, right? The story was basically about me. So, um, so I'm going to just read some really smart guys. Is that fair? Okay, so here's some really smart guys, uh, Christian philosophers that help us understand this concept a lot better. C.S. Lewis, to start with, great Christian thinker of the 20th century. So C.S. Lewis said that, you know, God created us with the ability to choose right or wrong right? So he says, some people, some people think they can imagine a creature which was free, but had no possibility of going wrong. Now, let me stop right there and explain just a second. So some people may say, why didn't God create the world in a way that evil just wouldn't happen, right? Why didn't he create us in a way that evil wasn't possible? And this is exactly what C.S. Lewis is answering. He's saying, that is impossible. Like logically, God is not going to act illogically, he is the definition of good logic, right? So he's not going to create a world where there's freedom, yet we can't freely choose to do right or wrong. 
because that's not freedom. He says, he can't imagine that. He says, if a thing is free to be good, right? If we as humans are free to choose something good, then we are also free to be bad. And free will is what has made evil possible. Free will, though it makes evil possible, is also the only thing that makes possible any good thing, any love or goodness of joy worth having. He says, a world of ultimata, in other words, a world of creatures that worked like robots or machines that really had no free will to choose the right or the wrong would hardly be a world worth creating. One more, Christian philosopher Norman Geisler, he says, when there is no moral free choice, then there is no possibility of moral good. Unless hate is possible, love is not possible. Where no creature can blaspheme, no creature can worship either. Therefore, if God were to destroy all evil, he would have to destroy all good too. So let's break this down in the way that it happened chronologically in the scriptures, in the Bible, in the history of humanity. In the Garden of Eden, after creation, God, we see the, we see the first humans, right? What are they doing? They're choosing to sin. Okay, so God was very clear on what they should not do and what they should do, and yet they decided to rebel against his authority, to take things in their own hands and try to live some other better life against his commands, right? So Adam and Eve chose voluntarily to sin, right? They were free to do the right thing. They were commanded to do the right thing. God desired for them to do the right thing, but he gave them the ability to choose not to do the right thing, and that's exactly what they did. And this introduced sin into the human race and into the natural world. And the ripple effects of that choice that day in the garden have spread, like when you throw a little rock in the middle of a pond, the ripple effects have spread throughout all of us as their descendants ultimately and the natural world itself. The world is under a curse of evil and wickedness and sin corruption of something good God created that should never have been this way. You see, our world today is not the way it's supposed to be. It's not the way God designed it to be. Sin and evil and wickedness has corrupted us. It's corrupted our world morally and naturally. God's good creation has been corrupted. What he created was good, but we have corrupted it. Humans in the natural world are under the curse of this sin. The world is broken. And we're all guilty of this, right? We're all guilty of this. We have chosen, despite our free choice to do the right thing, what do we do? We choose to do the wrong thing. We choose to worship something other than God himself. And that ruins us. It ruins us. So as we talk about what we know to be true, with humility, with gentleness, with respect, as we're talking and engaging with a non-Christian, we have to be clear, God is good. We're not and this sin problem has been a problem since the beginning of humanity, and it corrupts the good things God has created. So talk about these things, but in the end, to help your non-Christian friends see God's truth, lastly, number three, we must encourage them ultimately to trust God's love. Encourage them to trust God's love. To quote Geisler again, Norman Geisler, he says that, that since God is infinitely good and loving, 
he must have a good purpose for everything. You know, theologians agree that just because we can't see a good reason for evil and suffering in this world doesn't mean that there's not one. It doesn't mean that God doesn't have an ultimate good purpose in the end. We know some pain and suffering in this world serves a good purpose. So, for example, uh, Gassler gives the example of pain, right? So if you have pain in your body, is the pain itself a good thing? Well, of course not. No one in here would agree that the pain you have in your physical body is good in and of itself. But what purpose does that pain play? That pain is alerting you. That pain is telling you as a warning signal something is wrong and you need to get it checked. So ultimately, the pain that is bad serves a greater good purpose. So if that's true for pain in our bodies, could it not be true for the rest of the suffering in the world that we don't understand? If we think about the story of Joseph in Genesis chapter 50, Joseph was a victim of horrific tragedy and injustice and suffering, yet he realized something as he trusted God's love. In Genesis 50, 20, as he's speaking to his brothers, who he had been estranged from for years, he says, as for you, now Joseph's brothers tried to kill him, all right? They set up this plot to deceive their dad, to get rid of Joseph. They ended up selling him into slavery. And here's what he said years later. Joseph had become the prince of Egypt. He was second in command of all the Egyptian empire. And his brothers are coming to him in the middle of a famine for food. And here's what he says. He says, as for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. You see, Joseph was in charge of the food supply in that part of the world at the time. So people from surrounding countries are coming to Joseph begging for food in the middle of this great famine, including his own family, who had sold him into slavery years before and mistreated him in all these ways and estranged him from his life, everything he'd ever known. But ultimately, God was working all of that together for good in that he promoted Joseph up the ladder in Egypt to be the one who was smart enough to figure out this famine, smart enough to store up food supply so that he could feed those around and love and save so many lives from starving to death. God's good purposes that we don't understand are rooted in his perfect love. And how exactly do we know? How do we know God's love towards us is perfect? How do you know that? Keller points out in his book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, he says, imagine, can you just imagine what Jesus' followers must have been thinking when Jesus was being crucified on the cross? I mean, just imagine Mary, his mom, as she is standing or kneeling there before the cross, watching her son bleed to death in the most excruciating pain and agony you can even fathom because of something he did not do. Because of the injustice of those around him, he is just hanging there naked in front of everyone, bleeding and suffering for something he didn't do. And you have to know You have to imagine that Mary and some of the others there around her were thinking, 
how, I don't see, I don't see how God could bring any good out of this. I don't see how God could bring anything good out of this. This is terrible. This is evil. This is wicked. But it was through that very suffering that God would save his people from the ultimate suffering of eternal death and separation from him forever. When Jesus hung on the cross, he was God in the flesh who created the world, who created you, who created all people. But he was a God, the one true God, the only God, who didn't just create the world with us having this ability to choose the wrong thing, which corrupts us and corrupts everything around us. He didn't just back away and say, well, maybe they'll figure it out. No, he was a compassionate God, a God of perfect love. What kind of creator God would put himself in the midst of the darkness, put himself in the deepness of the pain and the agony and the suffering himself to deliver us from it? Jesus is not a God who is distant. What your lost friends and neighbors and loved ones need to know is that there is a God of perfect love who made himself suffer so that they would never have to eternally. Jesus suffered by taking on our suffering that we deserved. He suffered in our place. That's the death that's the death that my sin should have caused me to die forever and be separated from God. You know, Jesus had, Jesus had perfect communion with God the Father and the Holy Spirit for all eternity past. Perhaps the greatest suffering that Jesus experienced that day was not just the physical suffering, but the mental anguish of knowing that as darkness fell over the cross and over Palestine that day, that as the darkness fell, God the Father was turning his back, the one who he had never turned his back on. He was turning his back against, away from Jesus. Jesus in that moment is feeling the weight, not just of our sin, but of the separation from God that you and I are supposed to feel. He was separated on the cross so that you would never have to be. Jesus suffers for you. Keller says, why did he do it? Jesus came on a rescue mission for creation. He had to pay for our sins so that someday he can end evil and suffering without ending us. In Hebrews chapter 4, the author of Hebrews says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who, is, who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You see, the perfect love of Jesus, it is not an unsure, uncertain kind of wishful thinking. It is a certain hope. It's a real Hope, the God who suffered for you will one day end all suffering so that you don't have to end, so that you don't have to be ended. You don't have to be destroyed 
Suffering will be defeated. You know, this can serve this truth about the goodness of Jesus suffering in our place. I believe with my whole heart and I know that it can serve as a powerful framework, a powerful foundation for you as you seek to be a faithful witness in this world. Believer, Christian, listen. Use this as your framework to deal with suffering because if you're not dealing with it now, and I don't mean to be morbid or doom and gloom, but if you're not dealing with suffering now, you will. You will one day. And establishing this framework in your mind and in your heart, letting the truth of God saturate the way you think is going to make all the difference in the world when you go through your suffering. I speak to this as someone who knows. This continues. The great love of Jesus continues as a framework and foundation of hope and comfort for my wife, Christy, and I. For us, suffering is not philosophical, it's personal. You see, next Sunday, September 10th, uh, would be our daughter Addie's 10th birthday. Addie passed away in February of 2015 when she was 17 months old from leukemia. She was diagnosed when she was only four and a half months old. And, you know, for those of you who have ever been diagnosed with cancer or some kind of terminal illness uh, or your loved one has, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You know the feeling that your world is crumbling when you hear those words, that perhaps for the first time in your life, you realize how little control you actually have. And that's the feeling, right? That's the feeling we had the day that she was diagnosed when the doctor came in the ER and told us that that's, that was the diagnosis. And that's the feeling. That's the feeling that we would have many more times over the next 12 and a half months as she battled the disease. Fear and doubt and that gap between what I knew and what Christy knew and what God knew, the gap that must be filled with either fear, doubt, or trust, doubt won the day. It was prevalent at times in my heart. We, we lived you know, in and out of the hospital, and I can't count the number of times that we, we waited for answers. We waited for answers, and we, and, and we just wonder why, why, where's the answer, and we just never got the answer. And how that prompts doubt and confusion in my own heart. And, and the temptation, the temptation is to look back and, and look back and, and just always look back with that doubt, right? But what we strive to do is to look forward with hope. And what I'm telling you today is that the framework of God's real, personal, complete infinite love through Jesus for you, that framework will give you the comfort and the assurance of a certain hope that you never maybe thought you could have. You see, in Romans chapter 5, Paul speaks of suffering. He says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. And I want to be clear, that doesn't mean that when we suffer, we say, I'm so glad that I'm suffering. I love this suffering, right? That's not what he's saying. He's saying, in spite of the suffering, 
We can have the hope of eternal glory through Jesus Christ knowing because what's happening? What is God doing? The infinitely wise, powerful, loving God is producing endurance through the suffering. And endurance produces character. And and character produces hope. And hope, not a wishful thinking kind of hope, but a certain, a certain, you know it's going to happen kind of hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So as Ben read in our service earlier in 2 Corinthians, for this light, momentary affliction, as painful as it may be, as disturbing as it may be, as horrific as it may be, ultimately, compared to the weight of glory, it is a light, momentary affliction. It's preparing you. God is using it to shape you, to prepare for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. The things that you can see are in this world and your suffering are not going to give you the answers that you want. It's the things that are unseen and the majesty and powerful of our all-knowing, all-wise, all-powerful, all-loving God that only he knows, and you may never know, but you fill that gap with trust because his love has been perfected. His love is perfect towards you always through the death and resurrection of himself. Do you see that? You see, when we think about our lives and how short they are, when we think about our suffering, when we think about the evil in this world, how can we not How can we not think of heaven? The God who suffered is the God who's going to put all things right. This is not the way things are supposed to be. And let me say, this is not the way things will always be. God is going to put all things right. Everything sad will become untrue. Everything evil will be vanquished, destroyed and defeated. And here's here's the way it ends up. At the end of the Bible, God wanted us to know what was coming. We're in line at the parade and we can only see one day at a time, but he gave us a glimpse. He gave us a glimpse of what's actually down the road. And John said this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death, death, death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Our prayer for ourselves as Christians who suffer, our prayer for our non-Christian friends who suffer. Ultimately, may we ask God to help us. As Psalm 13 ends, by the way, I quoted Psalm 13 to start. 
It was very dark and gloomy. David's questioning God, but here's how he ended his prayer. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. May that be our prayer. As we seek to love, as we seek to serve, as we seek to listen to those around us who are struggling with belief, maybe that's you here today. Even though you are a Christian, even though you love Jesus, the gap between what you know and what what God knows is just right now filled with doubt. May this be your prayer. But Lord, help me to trust in your steadfast love. Whatever's happening to me right now, I know it's not because you don't love me. It's because ultimately you're working out something for good that I can't just see. I just can't see it, but I know your love. I know you love me, Jesus. Real quick, as we end, I just want to share a couple of really quick things with you, and it's not even going to be on the screen, but if you are having these conversations with non-Christians, a few things to keep in mind. Number one, if the person is suffering, be there. So just be there for them, whatever that looks like in your relationship to them that's appropriate, be there for them. Number two, listen. Just listen to them. They're going to need to talk. Number three, serve proactively. So in other words, don't do the like, hey, if you need anything, let me know. No, just go do something for them without them even giving you the permission as long as it's a good thing, right? If you're not a good cook, maybe don't cook a meal for them. But you know, right? Lastly, share the hope. Share the hope and the love of Jesus when the time is right. You know, I hope you've enjoyed this series. I've, I've enjoyed going through it with you and having these conversations about how to have good conversation with people who don't believe. So we've been in this for five weeks and we're gonna move on next Sunday, as you saw, to a different sermon series. But I want us to end today in a time of prayer. And here's what I want you to pray for. I want you to think of one person. Just who's the one person in your life that needs Jesus Christ? Who's the one person in your life who's skeptical about the faith? You know they're not a believer. They need salvation. I want us to spend a few moments in prayer. Kyle's going to come out and lead us with a closing song. Before he actually starts singing, though, I want to pray with you. And as I pray, I want you to be thinking about that person and how you can be a witness to them. Ask the Lord now to give you that opportunity.